Thank you for praying for me over the last several uh, weeks. It's been a kind of a crazy month for me health-wise. I had zero voice last Sunday morning, and so, so grateful for Jim not just stepping in, but doing a wonderful job of bringing God's word to us. Um, so grateful for that. The Lord did answer your prayers and, and the prayers of many others. It was crazy because Sunday morning I had zero voice. And by Monday morning when I was sitting uh, at the State Department to communicate about the persecuted church in China, I had a, a really strong voice. And so I do believe the Lord reminded me uh, that I can only do what I do through prayer and that my voice is his voice and he can give it to me when he wants to. So that was humbling to realize that uh, again. Uh, but, but jumping into this passage, I know that was a long scripture reading. I had an opportunity on Saturday morning to visit the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., which I would highly recommend to anyone uh, if you're ever in Washington. It's an amazing place, what they've done there. Uh, but I, I'd forgotten that many of the Bible translators throughout history, or at least several, have been martyred just for translating the Bible so that we have it today. And even though that was a bit of a long reading of Scripture, uh, there, are, there are men who died to give that to us. And so we're going to be talking about the martyrs a bit in this sermon, uh, particularly the martyrs during Roman times and some even currently today. I had an opportunity to visit Rome uh, back in 2019. I won a, a grant from the Lilly Foundation, which funded a sabbatical for me and my family, which enabled us to do some things that we could never do as a family. One of those is to fly the whole family to Rome uh, for 16 days, and we stayed in an Airbnb two blocks from the Colosseum. And so you literally, we could walk out our front door and look left, and the Colosseum is right there. It's unbelievable. Uh, sight to behold. Uh, the Colosseum is a place where the Roman elites would gather, and it was a, a, to get an invitation to the Colosseum was, was really something. You felt like you had really made it if you were watching the spectacle of the gladiator games. One of the games that went on in Rome was that they would, uh, before the main events, they would bring the Christians out, and they would watch the lions eat them uh, in the Colosseum for sport. And so another opportunity we had not only to visit the Colosseum and to kind of recognize what went on there uh, was about two blocks in the other direction from our Airbnb is a church of St. Clement. Clement was a disciple of John in the, in the late first century and early second century. He was a pastor in Rome. And his church, uh, to give you a picture of what it might look like, it's about two or three stories down in the catacombs. You have to go down in there. And while the games were happening in the Colosseum about four blocks away, they were gathering for worship. They worshiped in a, in a clandestine way uh, for obvious reasons because there were Sundays often where their brothers and sisters would not show up for worship because they were uh, lion, uh, lion food uh, in the Colosseum at the same time. And this is what they had to live through in Rome. And so the question that John begs us to ask as we look at the end of history is at the end of history, who are the winners and who are the losers? Because if you're living in Rome during that time, every Roman elite that joined in those games felt like they were part of the winning side, that they were winning in life. They were the elites. They had security, they had comfort, they had entertainment. 
They had fine things that were read for us in chapter 18. It was a very wealthy city. And if you're a part of that Roman establishment and that elite class, you really felt like, from a worldly perspective, that you had made it. The Christians, on the other hand, believed that they were actually winning because they were following the Lord Jesus at the same time. They were mocked. They were uh, set aside for many of the Roman trades. They self-consciously withdrew themselves from other trades, which were not okay for Christians to participate in. And so they were poor, poorer, or very poor uh, in some cases. And they, um, many of them were, were persecuted for their faith. And yet they believed they were the winners in this scenario. You know, there's another site that you can see in Rome, which I would recommend to you. It's called Broken Pot Mountain. It's a few miles from the Colosseum in the sea on the shoreline. And it is a mountain of clay pots where in ancient Rome, import, they imported huge quantities of olive oil for cooking, mostly from Spain. And they would carry this fine oil for cooking and for other things they would use for like skin treatments and other things for the wealthy. And they would carry the olive oil from the ships to the elite areas of Rome and people would use this olive oil. And when ultimately the clay pots, because the oil would seep into the pots, they would fail and, and they would break them and they would throw them into the sea in what became uh, something that was 35 meters high. Currently today is 35 meters high and covers 21,500 square feet. It was probably larger in those ancient days. And Broken Pot Mountain has become a symbol of what ancient Rome actually became. It became a broken place, a place that was set aside, thrown away, conquered. These same clay pots that carried wealthy things to the elites are now heaped up in the harbor in Rome. In the end, ancient Rome, though it's still beautiful today, was a bastion of deception. Politics, civil, civic leadership, sexual immorality, decadence, fine living, everyone, all of these different avenues conspired together to communicate to the people of Rome that Rome was it. You have to see, one thing we'll see here is that it's all of these things working together, all of these avenues that you find in the most wealthy cities of the world, that when you're in those cities and you're making it, you actually begin to believe that you are godlike, that you don't really need anything, that you've made it. And all of these different industries in Rome would conspire together in this satanic ruse. But in the end, the winners are clearly seen to be the Christians, and the losers are those who follow in the way and make it their way to, to live in, these, in Rome and to, to participate in all of this without repentance. So today we're going to talk about what it looks like to join the resistance. What does it look like to live as a Christian in America and to join the resistance movement. 
in Rome, it was rather obvious what it looked like to, to be a Christian. It, it was black and white, very stark. In America, sometimes we find it to be a little more challenging and less clear, but we'll talk about that a little bit later today. But we're going to dive in in chapter 17 with uh, money and power. What we see here is money and power and the allure of what John calls the other woman, the other woman. So Broken Pot Mountain has obvious parallels for us today in America. I mean, we, uh, we, we hear things like, we, we live in a throwaway culture. We consume and consume and consume and consume. And the storage industry in America, I looked this stat up about 10 years ago. The storage industry, self-storage industry in America, 10 years ago was worth $12 billion. In 2022, it was worth $61 billion. And by 2032, it's estimated to reach $101 billion. This is just things that Americans have that we don't know what to do with. And so we pay money to store them not in our own homes. Now, there are legitimate reasons to do that when you're moving or whatnot. But people, this, is, this has become a lifestyle. I, I don't have enough room for all of my stuff, so I'm going to pay for other places to store. It's amazing, the, the storage industry. It's either that or, you know, five or ten years ago, your Christmas presents are either in storage or at Goodwill or you threw them away. I mean, we're, we're carving out mountains in Nevada for our trash. We have so much stuff. We don't know what to do with it, and yet the consumption in America is incredible. Why do we keep buying all the things that we buy some call it retail therapy, but we don't just shop to feel better about getting something new. We're shopping for something different than what you're actually shopping for. When you shop, you're actually shopping for an identity oftentimes. We want things not just because we need to stay warm or because we need to replace something that broke. We, we're shopping to actually find identity and fulfillment. I think this message today is particularly important. I've lived in Cary for 15 years. I've raised children in Cary and in the suburban triangle, and I actually grew up in a uh, upper middle class family in, in Birmingham, Alabama, and so uh, this wasn't, this isn't too dissimilar from how I grew up, but I'm telling you the amount of wealth around us, the amount of, of status and, and nice things, it, it can communicate to us that we need all of them and if we don't have them, then we're really not making it. And from a worldly standpoint, many in Cary have made it. It's not like ancient Rome and that it's not so urban. But many of the most wealthy people in America don't live in urban areas anymore. They live in suburban areas for a reason. And so we have the same um, avenues at work in our lives where you have wealth and power and status and politics and, and trade and all of this that that can give us quite a lot here. And there's nothing wrong, I want you to, to hear this, there's nothing wrong with having money or comfort or success. But there is a, a deep temptation that is involved with having any or all of those things. Jesus talked about money second to any other topic next to the kingdom of God. And he talked about money a lot. Why? Because he, he would say things like, where your treasure is, there your heart shall be also. And the, the reality is when you have a lot of worldly treasure, it's hard for your heart not to, 
identify with that in such a way that that really becomes your treasure instead of Jesus becoming and being your treasure. It's difficult to have a lot of worldly treasure and not to make it your treasure. And the only way to resist the slide toward wickedness that comes from the love of money is to see the way it contrasts with true happiness in God on the one hand. Money can tell you that this is the way to be happy, but it never delivers. And Jesus says, I am the way to true happiness. The other thing that can help us is to recognize the end that will certainly come to all who make wealth and comfort and power and status their identity. You can see this in this passage. And so chapter 17 paints the picture of how wealth, comfort, power, they can become allied forces to attract us away from God. So if we jump in at verse 1 in chapter 17, we'll walk through this chapter. I'll try to explain it to you. Verse 1, the great prostitute who sits on the waters... This is an allusion or an allegory for Rome. Rome sat on the waters, and they believed because of their wealth, they could exercise self-sovereignty over the world and over over the people in that that city. The trade of that day, why is it on the waters? Trade was all done through, it's maritime trade. And so if you can control the waters, then you can control the economies of the world, the shipping industry. It's a city built on trading superiority. Verse 2, global and local leadership come together around the prostitute, Rome. The kings of earth relish in all that Rome has to offer. The overflow of resources, also sexual sin, came along and entangled itself with that. Verse 3, the beast now, so you have the prostitute or the other woman is symbolized in Rome, the city of Rome which is the symbol of of the great cities of the world. And then the beast stands behind the city. The beast is different than the prostitute. The beast is now clothed in scarlet, not ironically, the same color of the robe draped over Jesus. This is a kingly color. The beast is self-styling itself as the true king, the one who can deliver, who has the prestige and the money and the power to be trusted. And then verse 4, the, the woman comes back here. Here we see the other woman, a.k.a. the prostitute, a.k.a. Rome. And so the way this works in the spiritual realms is you have the beast, which is an, a manifestation of Satan's power, that is tempting the cities of the world to believe that they can find salvation in ways that are outside of Jesus Christ. And the proof of how you can find salvation and identity in the cities of the world is found in the wealth and in the power and in the prestige and in all that goes along with it. Everything is conspiring together in the city and it's of satanic influence to tempt you away from trusting in Jesus. Verse five, we see uh, on Rome's forehead is written Babylon the Great. So what does that mean? So Babylon is kind of the archetypal quintessential city of history that Rome points back to, a city that is allied against God. And then if you go down to verse 6, this woman in Rome, it says, is drunk on the blood of the saints. I just described what that means. It's literally drunk on the blood of Christians. Christians 
are at, in order to show the, the prominence and power of Rome, Christians are being persecuted and killed, and their blood is literally running in the Colosseum. Nero would, would, would light up Christians on fire to, to light the ways of streets in the city to show his power over the Christian movement. So you can see that one way to suffer in ancient Rome is through actually being persecuted like this. Another way of, being, uh, of, of allying yourself with Jesus and being persecuted in ancient Rome is something we often see today around the world with Christians. You know, I would say of all the Christians in the world who are being persecuted, roughly 1% are being persecuted by torture or imprisonment or eventually martyrdom. About 99% are being persecuted by just not going along with the worldly values that are around them. In ancient Rome, what this looked like, I mentioned this earlier, is that you decided you weren't going to participate in certain things, uh, certain trades, certain aspects of the economy. And, and so you were, uh, were self-proclaiming, I am an outsider. I am not participating in Rome. And it's hard to be an outsider. And when you're an outsider, then you're targeted in other ways. Many in China, are, they're having their power turned off or their cars stolen or their children forced to go to schools. They don't want them to go to, school, to that school. Uh, in America, there might be repercussions for business. Uh, there are ways that we, we, we feel like we can't say certain things even though we, we want to say them. And in some cases, we should say them. It's a, it's a hard thing. We feel like we're being canceled for just being a Christian and and just saying what you believe. There's certain contexts where we're told that's not okay. I think what John is getting at is this. There are at least two ways to suffer as a Christian. One is the way of Paul and Peter, of William Tyndale, of Jim Elliot. You may be, you may be unaware that every year, this is kind of hard to believe, but there's a lot of data to back it up, that Every year, 100,000 Christians right now in our time are martyred. 100,000. In the last 10 years, 900,000 Christians have been martyred around the world. So it's absolutely still happening. So martyrdom is one way, torture, imprisonment. The other way of suffering is living a long time in the resistance where you're just saying, I'm not going to live this way. I'm going to live a different way. And it costs you friendships. It might cost you jobs. It might cost you your reputation. You might not have as large of a following on Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat or whatever because of that. I know people that as soon as they start mentioning their faith, even if they're trying to do it in a very a wholesome and thoughtful way on social media, they lose, they just, they lose, lose followers, lose friends. It's part of suffering for Jesus in our day today. It's painful to be an outsider Many in the church don't face the first way of suffering, but all of us face the second way. If you jump down to verse 8, I want to explain this to you. It says, the beast, is it over and over again, the beast who was and is not. Okay, how do we understand this? Well, Jesus is described as the one who was and who is and who is to come. And so what John is saying is that the beast seems like that it is it or or. Rome or the city or the idols of the city. It sure seems like that this is permanent, that if I put my hope and trust 
in this thing, then I will, it will deliver from me. But the beast every time was and is not. Implication being that Jesus is the only one who was and who is and who is to come. He is the only one, if you worship him and you set him aside in your heart, then that he will last. He has staying power. Every other kingdom, and as you get down into this second part of that chapter, which is very difficult to kind of understand, starting in verse 9, the idea here with Rome, it sits on seven hills and there's all these kings. Essentially what this means, Tim Chester, uh, who's a commentator, says, this refers to the way that the beast manifests its power in recurring political systems throughout the day. So you have Rome, and then you have Constantinople, and then you, you, know, you have other kingdoms. You have London, you have Paris, you have Beijing, you have the United States, you have Washington. All of these kingdoms pass away, only one remains. And this is the way that history teaches us not to put our hope in the politics or the economics of the day. What happens to the great cities? They all fall. Like a beautiful woman or a handsome man in his prime, they all fade away. Nothing lasts. The only one who lasts is the king of kings, the lamb, Jesus Christ. So that's chapter 17. We'll go down to chapter 18 where reckoning comes. This is the lament of the deceived. The lament of the deceived. So this reckoning against the prostitute and the beast, Babylon called here, but it's Rome. It's anyone who identifies themselves with a system of power and economics and comfort and success. Anyone who makes that their identity and does not repent and make the lamb their identity, well, it's quite terrifying what happens in the end. It's final. It's not up for conversation there's no debate in heaven about this. this. The angel speaks authoritatively. There's three angels, actually. They come in verse 1, verse 4, and verse 21, and they announce and oversee the fall of Babylon. The first angel in verse 1 tells us, it communicates to us that this is authoritative news because it comes with bright glory, showing the angel has authority. And the angel in verse 2 tells us why judgment has come. Because Babylon has become a place, a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for uncleanness. There is always evil lurking just beyond, just beyond the vision that we can see of the city. Sometimes you can't see it, but it's always there. And yet now everything is revealed. The spiritual activity behind the scenes is given as a reason for judgment. And then in verse 3, the people who follow the prostitute and the beast are judged. Why? Because they have walked in the ways without repenting. And they have followed the way that Satan had for them. Sexual immorality listed several times. Debauchery with wine. Kings are intoxicated by power. Merchants are growing rich, living in luxury, doing it on the backs of the poor. And God will not allow this to stand. This is a picture here of people who are fully enraptured in a system that does not have God in it at all. They are fully enraptured in this decadent, luxurious life that reinforces their belief that they no longer need God. Verse 4 and 5, God importantly calls his people his bride. He says, 
Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in their sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are as high as the heavens, and God has remembered her iniquities. I want to be very clear here, okay? When you come to Christ and you trust in him by his grace, you are cleansed from all your uncleanness, all your sins. You are forgiven for all of that, everything. But when you come to Christ, you also have a new identity. And he calls us to come out and be separate. And so when God calls us to holiness, this is super important, he never calls us to holiness so that we will receive his grace. He calls us to holiness because we have already received his grace. It's an incredible difference. It's actually the difference between all of the world religions and Christianity. Grace compels and leads to holiness. You know, when you become a Christian, how does that happen? It's because you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit makes you born again so that you have a new life. For many, many years, I never thought about the Holy Spirit's name. I just thought his name is the Holy Spirit. But he's the Holy Spirit. So if you have the Spirit of God living in you, it's a Holy Spirit who calls you to come out and live a different way and to live a different life. There are real consequences if we do not follow the Holy Spirit. Now, those consequences, if you're a Christian, do not include uh, going to hell. They do not include that if you're a Christian. If you are saved by grace, then you are going to heaven. Okay, so that's not the consequence. But there are other consequences in life. You, you, we receive temporary or temporal consequences in life for living in sin and not turning from it. What are some examples of those consequences for sin? There are, there are consequences like addiction, like broken relationships, like diseases or health consequences, like losing your reputation, like always searching and never finding what you're looking for. Those are real consequences. They, they hurt. They hurt you. They hurt other people. And so God calls us to come out and to trust him, to come out of Babylon and be separate. So that's the why of the judgment. The, the, there's, there's, there are people in the world that have turned away from the lamb and turned toward the world and have not repented and are not seeking God. And they are believing that salvation can come outside of God. So that's the why of judgment. Let's talk about the when of judgment. In verse 8, it tells us these plagues come on a single day. This is the day of the Lord. This is the final judgment. It, it, the end, it's just, it's absolutely, it happens in a day. It, it, as it goes through this passage, it says a day, an hour, a minute, and it just walks through and makes the time feel even shorter if you read through chapter 18. So that's the, the why and the when. And now let's look at the response. There's three responses that really jump out here, okay? And the first one is in verse 9. It's weeping over a lost city. The people of the city will mourn the city that they loved. You know, we've, I've been told since I was like three, you know, you can't take it with you. You can't put all your stuff in your coffin. Um, and I, I believe that's true. But what you see here is the other side of people who actually believed that they were going to have this stuff forever. And they love their, they love their things. They love their wealth. They love it. They, they adore it. They love their city and, for, and what the city can do for them. 
They absolutely worshipped their possessions. And it has failed them, and so they lament. I have a really good friend in Shanghai who pastors a church there. I, I walked him through. I'm a, I'm a coach for church planners. Three of those guys are in China. And I walked him through the lockdown in Shanghai, which is the most uh, repressive lockdown of any city in the world. They were locked down, could not leave their apartment except for to get food in very restrictive ways for 60 days. You could hear people screaming from their apartments because they were, they were losing their minds. It was brutal. But what his main concern was, was, it was interesting. It wasn't about quarantining. It wasn't about the app they used to control people's movements. Though those were concerning things. It was about gospel ministry. I'll never forget when he said this to me. He said, you know, people move to Shanghai to serve the city so that the city will serve them. Shanghai is the idol. The lockdown is showing people they can't put their hope in Shanghai anymore. They need a better place to put their hope. So many are turning from Shanghai and are coming to Christ. I love how he put that because he made Shanghai the idol. Often we could, we could substitute in for ourselves, I don't know if it would be Kerry or Durham or Raleigh or, or just America. We could make America, and not, I'm not talking about politics necessarily here, it's part of it. But this idea that if you move to Kerry or you're in America, that, that man, if you serve the country and you, you live in such a, such a way that it will actually give you everything that you need. Maybe we've been uh, saved from believing that through the last several years, I hope so. We can still believe that, though, especially economically. The second response we see here is weeping over lost wealth. I just wanted to cover this directly. It's just striking here in verse 10 through 20. So much time is given to describe the people's lament over all the stuff they're losing, that they lose in a single hour. They, they're losing gold, silver, clothes, costly symbols of wealth like ivory, cattle, and sheep. They also in verse 13, they lament the loss of their slaves of human life, not because of their humanity that is being lost, but because the slave industry propped up their economic status and they hate losing their money and what the slave trade could do for them in Rome. They love their economy and what it can do for them. And the third response we see here is the response of the church, which is rejoicing over God's justice in verse 20. I appreciate what Jim said from John Stott last week, that every time we talk about God's judgment, we need to have a tear in our eye. And I, I believe that's absolutely true. I don't know how you can read chapter 18 and just not be cut to the heart about people that we know. First of all, it should warn us about our own hearts. But people that we, we want to know Christ. And so it should motivate us to pray for them. But the, the response we see here is a rejoicing over God's justice in verse 20. We're called to, on one hand, weep for those who will perish. On the other hand, we're called to rejoice that God will avenge the blood of his saints. He will make all things new. He will not allow idolatry to continue to tempt people away from him, which is true joy he will not allow violence against the weak to win the day. So the third point, the final point is joining the resistance. What does that look like? The final, these 10 verses I'll cover, and I'm not gonna go into great detail here because Jim is gonna preach on this passage next week and part of this passage, the, the wedding supper of the Lamb. 
Um, and so he'll go into much more detail. But I want to draw out for you what it looks like to join the resistance. And this is the hallelujahs of a holy bride. You can't, I, I thought about not doing chapter 19, but it would be a real downer, right? Um, so I think we need to cover 19. Um, here we find the, the, the great benefit that comes from living in the resistance, from living in the catacombs of St. Clement's Church in Rome. For my friends and your friends in China and all over the world, the 100,000 people who were martyred this year, this is good news. This is really good news. There are four hallelujahs in this section. Interestingly, these are the only hallelujahs found in the New Testament. The only ones that are transliterated from the Hebrew and written as hallelujah uh, in the Greek. You, you find hallelujahs in Psalms quite often, but in the New Testament, there's only four and they're here. So let's talk about that for a moment together. The first hallelujah is in verse one. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. We praise God for his holiness and his glory and his power and his justice because he will not allow evil to remain and he will ensure that the righteous will win. He is the righteous judge and he will vindicate his saints, especially the martyrs. The second hallelujah is in verse three. It says, hallelujah, smoke goes up from her forever and ever. This is the smoke that is rising from Rome after judgment comes. Now, I actually don't believe, I think this is allegory because I don't think in the new heavens and the new earth, we're gonna have the smoke plumes of judgment forever and ever. But the idea of these smoke plumes that God is righteous and he will not allow evil to win will live on forever. Verse four, hallelujah, the 24 elders and the four living creatures, which we find in chapter four for the first time and kind of reoccur throughout Revelation, these elders and living creatures represent all of creation. They are worshiping the one who sits on the throne. And then in verse six, hallelujah, the redeemed from the nations will cry out together as a mighty multitude and worship to God. God has made his church ready to be there with him. I received an email this morning, so hot off the press from, from China. This comes from Guiyang, where Hannah Krem, the first reader this morning, and Adam and Haley Strouth lived as missionaries years ago. There's a pastor there. His name is Zhang Chun Lei. His sentencing has been delayed for over a year after first being heard in November of 22. He was arrested in March of 21, almost four years ago, and there's no word as to why his case has not yet been settled. He wrote a poem from prison, and it is this. It's called Seven Rhymes Reminiscences. So this is translated from Mandarin. Um, the court has been in session for more than a year, and I have not yet received the judgment. What is the reason for my long detention? I've been in prison for four years. I look up at the shelf and say seven words of peace. I don't expect justice on earth, but I know the Lord of heaven will redress the wrongs. I wish the lampstand at the end of the earth would be full. I wish to be free in the sound of hymns. That's where you find your hope if you're in prison. You think about the end. You think about worshiping with the saints. You think about that it's all worth it because the Lord will vindicate his people. I'll conclude with this. As we're gonna walk through the end of Revelation together, you're gonna find the striking contrast that ever is more and more clear of the difference between Babylon 
and Jerusalem, the juxtaposition of the city of God and the city of man. In the end, it will be clear which city you are a citizen of. And the great litmus test is this, which, in which city are you seeking identity and fulfillment? Is it the city of God? Are you looking to Jesus Christ for your identity? Are you looking to the city of man to find your identity? What would it look like for your affection to pull you in the direction of Jesus instead of toward shopping or entertainment or the constant pursuit of fulfillment in the way that you uh, want to find it? I think it would change the way, honestly, and particularly in Carrie, I think it would change the way that we understand our relationship with our money. David Platt, who wrote Radical as a pastor in Washington, D.C., I know him personally. David Platt has researched it and found this. This is striking. The average evangelical, take that term however you feel like it, gives 2.5% of their income to the church or to nonprofits. 2.5%. The average church gives an average of 2% of its income to global missions, which means that the average evangelical family or evangelical uh, family unit is probably at best giving five cents out of every hundred dollars we make to world missions. That's, I, think, I think these stats are true. And if that is an accurate reflection of our hearts and our souls, that's a, that's a really scary litmus test. What you see throughout Revelation, what is God concerned about over and over and over again? It's that the nations would come to know him. Over and over again, what is the joy of God as he, as he looks forward to seeing us that day? It is the wedding, wedding supper of the Lamb is filled with the nations. And yet, what are we doing with 99.95 of our income? I'm not saying that necessarily reflects us here. We give 10% of our money in our church to missions, so it's not 2.5%. But what, is that, what does that look like for us, even financially, to say, I care deeply about the extension of the gospel on earth. I do. I care deeply. I'm going to live it out in the way that I, I give. And or the, my relationship to what I buy also. Why do I buy what I buy? There are some really important things that everyone needs to, to buy. I'm trying to figure out how to pay for college myself or my kid. There's some stuff like that. There's other stuff too, you know? And, and Olivia and I have to reflect on this as well. So it's not just for you, it's for us as well. How does the use of your money show you something about where you're finding your identity? One thing that's on my heart is for our children's ministry and for our youth ministry. I was talking with someone at our recent General Assembly who started a ministry that uh, is helping kids know how to give digitally because when I was growing up, the plate was, the plate was passed and I saw my dad drop a check or some cash and I kind of learned every day, every Sunday that, man, people give. I could see it. Now, like 97% of our money is given digitally, which is actually really good. But then how, does that, how, how do we teach our kids about generosity in an age when all of it's done through back channels? It's something for us to consider. It's something Alicia and I and Charity as our global missions team leader are, are thinking about together. So the final thing I'll just say today is if you were to join the resistance what would it look like to live as more of a bride of Christ than as someone who is a citizen of Cary or America? I know we have to do both, but what would that trans transition of allegiance look like in your heart and in your mind right now? 
I pray that we will be able to see through the allures of America, of Shanghai, of London, or wherever you come from, and we'll be able to look and see the allure, the beautiful attraction of Jesus Christ who gave his life for us so that if we trust in him, if you trust in him and his grace, you can be saved and receive a new identity. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your great promises to us. And I pray, Lord, that we will follow you, that we'll join the resistance in very practical ways with our relationship with our money, our relationship with um, the city that we live in. Teach us to be your people first and then be sent out as missionaries wherever we find ourselves so that we can make much of you in this world. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.